This is Sound Heights Records Podcast, Session 24. And the song lyric of the day is by Mose Allison. You know, if silence was golden, you couldn't raise a dime. Because your mind is on vacation and your mouth is working overtime. Welcome to the Sound Heights Records Podcast. Harmonizing life and music, growing as an artist, improving as a person, gaining insight and inspiration, conversations with world-class musicians. Welcome to Sound Heights Records. This is Yisrael Aryeh. I was really fortunate this week to entertain a visit at the studio here at Sound Heights in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, by the one and only, really kind of an unbelievable musical personality, guitar player, composer, Will Bernard. Very low-key and unassuming individual as you can hear from the conversation, when you scratch the surface a little bit into his music and his background and his compositions, there's an incredible amount of great music, a lot of depth there. If you look on his website, where there'll be a link in the show notes, and you look at the, the critics' quotes, one of the themes there, like almost over and over and over again, it mentions under the radar unsung, you know, underappreciated, deserves a wider audience. And when you start to dive a little bit into his music, you figure out why. I mean, right away, uh, as you heard in in the opening of this show, and we'll play a a song, a composition of his after the interview in full, there's a warm, bluesy, funky energy to his music, but there's a lot of depth there, too. He's incredibly prolific. I first met Will, I mean, he was playing at a, a small dive bar here in Brooklyn with my friend and, and studio compatriot, Jason Ewald, um, as part of an organ trio. And uh, right away, I mean, you hear the guy play, it's just warm and and, and uh, engaging guitar playing, you know, just the, it totally appeals to me um, going back and listening to his disc- discography. I mean, I had heard some of his work with New Orleans drummer Stanton Moore. He's played with so many individuals. I I won't even (laughs) start to name them in this intro. We talk about them, uh, a number of individuals that he's been uh, influenced by and involved with in the interview. But you can go check out his bio on his website and, and certainly go check out his music. We talked about different shades and different functions of music. I mean, he's a very well-rounded musical background, studies in in classical to jazz to to rock and roll um, to all sorts of of, uh, world music, Eastern music. I mean, he has a really rich background in music, which, again, is not so apparent on the surface. When you hear some of his music, it sounds like the funky, feel-good music that he's generally associated with, but it you know, when I tried to pin that, <laughs> that uh, kind of identity on him, he, he was quick to point out that he had, you know, much broader range of influences and, and a writing palette. And after checking out more of his music, I really appreciate that. One of the ways to kind of frame it that I've been thinking about, he mentioned as one of his major influences was Thelonious Monk, particularly the album Underground. And when you check out that album it's it has like a real earthy groove to it but it also has these angular compositional humorous elements musically humorous elements um it's really engaging really memorable really quirky and that kind of is a good way to think about 
Bernard's compositions, I think he's he's kind of in that Thelonious Monk mold, um, where the music feels good, it swings, it's funky, but when you kind of unpack some of the the composition elements, there's a lot of richness there. We also spoke about his routine that he tries to write every day. He really considers writing and composition his main thing. And that I find particularly inspirational because a lot of jazz players, even those who compose, might just compose for certain situations or songwriters like that. When they have an album coming up, they'll write some new music or, you know, and then there's the kind of songwriter or composer where they're just writing all the time and that's what they do. And Will is certainly of that ilk and kind of inspires me in that way. It's, you know, to always be working on something, always be writing something, and you can see from his output, incredibly prolific. I mean, his own albums, he has like about, I think, eight albums, and but he's been on so many other other records. I mean, the discography you find online, again, I'll, I'll link to his website, but even I don't even think he has everything he's done on there, uh, not by a long shot. Um, he's been involved in a lot of a lot of projects, a lot of great musicians, and in talking about the roles of music and thinking about the role of, of his music that, you know, thinking of also myself about the music that I feel naturally drawn to and want to play. There's a, certainly a strong New Orleans connection. I mean, Will has a, has a really strong New Orleans connection, even though he's from Berkeley, California, from the Bay Area, but he's been kind of accepted into the, the heavy hitters of, of New Orleans funk and jazz music. And, there's, and I've always been drawn to New Orleans music. And we discuss it. There's something about that music that's just uplifting in a really earthy and really joyful way. I mean, there's music that can be happy in a kind of anemic way. And there's music that really has guts that's uplifts and, and really it makes me want to, you know, move your body a little bit and, and makes you feel good in a really deep way. And though I don't know if he, <laughs> he was resistant to, to kind of peg himself as that, but, um, when I, I've been listening to more and more of his music, that it has that a lot of that quality, um, and I and I love it. I could listen to it all day, get up and dance a little bit, you know, <laughs> feel good about life. Things are not always easy, and there's a real positive contribution of feel good music, and the other shades of music as well that can be cathartic in different ways. And when I think about the role that music plays in my life as a listener, how it makes me feel to listen and, and to play and to participate and how much it's important to get over whatever hangups and, and challenges I have and that the music that I create is important, you know, even if it's not always getting the, the public feedback that one would hope for, but it still has a purpose and, it, you know, if it, even if it reaches a couple people, it serves a real positive purpose and ultimately we want to cultivate our minds and our hearts and our, and our approach to things that we can carry that attitude and the spirit that good music gives us and carry that into the rest of our lives. So before we get into the conversation, I just want to thank our Patreon patrons for your support. Um, it's the patrons and the, the donations that we get that enable us to keep this podcast going and increasing in activities um, providing resources for musicians in other ways as well. Um, right now, the place to do that is uh, Patreon. We've just applied for a 501c3, so we'll be able to get donations of support in other ways as well. Coming soon, we'll keep you posted about that. And you can join the ranks of patrons at patreon.com slash soundheightsrecords or go first to soundheightsrecords.com. Over there, you can find the link to all the rewards and unreleased tracks and pre-release tracks that you get as a patron. And also over there is a lot of the music we've been making over here, a whole page of videos, a whole and the, under the Brooklyn Jazz Warriors tab. Um, all these podcast episodes are listed up there, so go check that out. You can sign up for our mailing list at soundheightsrecords.com. So here it is without further delay, my conversation with... Will Bernard.
why did you choose Brooklyn as your home base? Well, I grew up actually in Berkeley, California. That's where I'm from. Okay. And um, I'd sort of been aware of, well, anybody who plays jazz or any related music is aware of New York. But um, I went to school with, um, went to high school with uh, Peter Affelbaum and Stephen Bernstein. I don't know if you know them. Yeah, they, they were big influences on me. And, and they, uh, you know, they were coming out here. They were involved with... Uh, Carl Berger's uh, creative music program uh, school in Woodstock, and oh, yeah? they went up there as teenagers. And Peter I, ended up playing with Carla Bley and Don Cherry and all these people. I studied with Carl Berger. Oh, you I did? In Woodstock. Uh, yeah, I, I had I was a rabbi in Woodstock wow. for five years. I ran a amazing yeah you know, organization. <laughs> I ended up hooking up with Carl, Carl Berger. Uh, I was cool. I was uh, very friendly with a guy who would collaborated with him named George Schutz. Hmm. Um, so, but so, but you didn't. You never. Did you have anything to do with Carl Berger? They were coming out here and early and and developing relationships. And you know, now I wish I'd gone to that that school, but you know, I didn't. But um, uh, you know, they were Peter and, and Stephen were big influences on me. Kind of in uh, like in high school, I knew Peter ever since kindergarten. But um, they, you know, they were into all kinds of really esoteric and sophisticated jazz and you know brought you know at our school we had this great uh, jazz band Berkeley High Jazz Band and a lot of people came through the the music school you know Berkeley California that is uh, music program you know like and they're still still like sending people out that are becoming stars there's a long, long list. So those guys were the same oh. age as you. Yeah. But you, but they were like a little bit. Of... They had kind of got into jazz more. I was more into rock and stuff like that. You know, I was a guitar player and listening to. That. So what were you listening to? To like Led Zeppelin and Hendrix oh. and. And then when the whole fusion thing came in, you know, that interests me a lot. You know. Uh, we're talking like Led Zeppelin era, like what, what years were well, we talking about? Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I just turned 60, actually. Oh, so. wow. You don't look at it at all. <laughs> so I went, I saw Led Zeppelin was the first, the second concert I ever went to, like rock concert. In I Berkeley? Yeah, in uh, Berkeley Community Theater, where, uh, which was our high school theater, which is where also Jimmy, wow. Jimi Hendrix filmed. I didn't know what to make of, you know, <laughs> when I saw them. I had like, you been listening to the music? I hadn't heard them, oh. no, I hadn't heard them. <laughs> but I'd listened, you know, I was listening to a lot of other rock stuff, and I, heard, I thought, oh, these guys are like, he sings like Janis Joplin, you know, that was my reference, you know. What were you were talking about? Like seventy one or something. Oh, early. Oh wow. Yeah. I mean there was That's a incredible. small like two thousand seat. Their venue. first American tour? I don't know if it was their first. Okay. One of their earliest ones, you know. Because yeah. they were pl- I mean they were they blew up pretty quick after Yeah. And then I saw them again, you know, at a much bigger place in around seventy five, I think. Uh-huh. I was always listening to Sort of cutting edge stuff and, uh, you know, like Mob Vishnu Orchestra and that era, you know, that stuff really, I really got into that. You Were know. you, uh, K-San? You know about K-San? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I used to live out west. Oh, okay. Not, not down there. I mean, I spent some time that way. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was a huge influence on really? K-San because I used to just have my headphones on and listen to K-San all day long, you know. So what, what? What kind of, uh, what did they turn you on? What did that radio station turn you on to? Well, um, you know, it was really, the early days there was not much, I can't think, Tom Donahue had this other radio station that I'm spacing on right now, but then they moved it over to KSAN. So I'd watched, I'd listened to the first one. And then I kept, you know, it was like a, that was my people, you know, I was into all that, you know, the Beatles. what music got you? Did you get turned on to from? Like from listening to K-San? Yeah. Well, the cool thing is they played all kinds of music. They played um, rock and soul and uh, even some jazz. You know, they played some jazz stuff on there too. And like I remember listening to some Howard Roberts thing. You know, mm-hmm. like late at night or. Um, but they would play. I remember listening to Doctor John. That's what I heard. Like Doctor John and. Um, uh, I don't know every all that kind of uh, it's called classic rock now I guess but you know they play some other 
off-the-wall stuff like Swamp Dog and Captain Beefheart. And, yeah. well, you know, they played a lot of Otis Redding. And... But that kind of, I mean, I guess coming up in like the Fusion era, did some of the more far-out stuff appeal to you right in the beginning? Yeah. Like early on? Yeah. Captain Beefheart, did that, that, was, that make a, sense to you? Right, right yeah, yeah I loved Captain Beefheart. I was into... So I loved him, you know, before I discovered Zappa, actually. Hmm. Um, and then I got really into Frank Zappa, and then that got me into composition and classical music and so, so I ended up going to school and learn, studying classical music. And there's so many, you have so many like different streams of music. I'm trying to like hedge them apart. I, mean, go, I usually like to maybe go back even if you can go back to like the first, your first musical memory. Well, actually my parents took me to folk festivals. My, my mother was, uh, my dad liked to fool around, play guitar. And my mom later studied classical piano. Actually, when they were getting divorced, she was. Um, we spent most of your time with her. It, yeah, and then I, but we had family friends that we'd go over, and they'd always be playing uh, folk, singing folk songs and stuff. So we'd like sing folk songs, and, so do, you know, do like you, the folk movement in the '60s. You know, was yeah, yeah, probably the, the music or the the lyrics. Like, was there something about that 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 sparked you early on? Um, yeah, it was funny because I, I gravitated towards the uh, bluesier things, you know, like mm -hmm. the Rock Island Line and yeah. some some Led songs like yeah. that. Yeah, so I, I always sort of liked the bluesier things better, mm -hmm. you know. And even like when I got into the Beatles, I liked their sort of funky, soulful mm -hmm. things better than the other, the other things, yeah. So. yeah. so I think I had, for some reason, I had that in my ear that I liked that, you know. From early yeah. Age. And then, what uh, inspired you to, to get into classical, studying classical composition? Well, I, like I said, I was first I was getting into all this fusion stuff, and then I got into Zappa, and then you know, he would recommend like mm -hmm. check out Edgar Varese, you know. And then there was this in uh, Berkeley. There was this amazing another summer program that I did, which was called uh, Center for World Music, and. Uh, I think they could do that, possibly do it now, because uh, they had people from all over the world just teaching uh, India, North South India, um, Bali, uh, Java, um, Africa, all like it was mm -hmm. kind of insane. Yeah, uh, and uh, ended up taking. I was playing a Javanese gamelan, you know, uh, but I would go to all these. Also, I took uh, like intonation and world music with Lou Harrison. You know, we we're doing uh, ratios and, do, and figuring out how to analyze uh, intonation and, and world music. When you were younger, not before you studied. When I was like fourteen. Wow, yeah. <laughs> you get on early. On, I mean, oh my gosh, it's like. So, but the other thing is, there was uh, a lot of new music. There. Well, Lou Harrison was there, but they would they did a uh, concerts of. Uh, you know, one thing that I watched a movie on Harry Parch, which blew my mind, you know. Um, and also there was like Charles Ives, like really struck mm -hmm. me. Like I, w I went to see a string quartet with my mom's piano teacher and uh, they played this Ives thing. And I couldn't stop laughing, you know, because, <laughs> you know, all the quotes and everything in the wrong keys he does. And I like I think I always like humor and music, too, because yeah. when I discovered Thelonious Monk, that was a big, big one for me, you know. His underground record, I just like looked at the front of it for about 10 minutes and laughed, you know. Yeah. And then like every song had like a, it was really funny, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it was like. In Walks Blood is on that, right? Yeah. 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 Boo Boo's Birthday, Ugly Beauty. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Um, but that particular, like there's certain records that really. Mm -hmm. struck me you know. it would seem like from my experience like having inspirations and influences and you had you get point to figure out which direction to go myself, i still have that like, problem <laughs> it's like well you know maybe could i could compose string quartets like play drums or maybe i'm going to go in and you know and, and get really deep into the keyboard or you know maybe i should just sing songs and <laughs> you know it's like you how to bring it all together well, how did yeah. you decide w which direction to go in? Are you still deciding your thing? Well, I think it, at one point you have to figure out what you can do to make a living, you know, unless you have, or, 
Right. You know, wealthy, you know. Yeah, I went to school, you know, I went to, I stayed basically at home and went to, got a degree at UC Berkeley. So I didn't really have to, I didn't move to the East Coast or anything, you know, it was the cheapest route and, you know, I found good teachers. And, um, but then after that, I was like, oh, what do I do now? Because they didn't really teach you how to make a living at music. Right. I mean, it's, maybe some schools do, but this school is more about academics and basically mostly training teachers, you know, or right. training you to go to grad st- school and become a teacher. Or, um, so I just started, uh, actually the first, I started just doing uh, wedding gigs. <laughs> and the first one I did was like Armenian Persian wedding band with this guy who, well, there's a lot of uh, Armenians that lived in Iran that had to move out, you know, when the shock got left. And so I did that for a while and then I, so like mostly, you know, I was, I would just do uh, what, you know, I get a gig and then I sort yeah. of go that way. And then I played in a klezmer band for about four years, actually, oh, yeah? with uh, Ben Goldberg. He had a um, group called the New Klezmer Trio, which predated John Zorn's uh, 77. And then I started playing with the hieroglyphics. They started actually, like Peter started the band when he was 18, you know. <laughs> And they made their self first self-produced record in um, '78, I think. Or, uh-huh. but I had graduated and I was sort of not hanging out with them. So I ended up joining around '83, '84, something like that. Um, but it was like a incredible, a pretty incredible band. And Peter's still one of my favorite composer. Uh, genius all around multi-instrumental well, did you, you know? get to hang out with don cherry much yeah we uh, um yeah we went to europe with him and we played festivals and it was a big group so we didn't travel a lot right but he actually moved to the bay area because of that group hmm. so you know, now in retrospect, it's like, man, I should have hung out with them a lot more. But right, I mean, story, you know, it's all the stories from those, <laughs> from the Ornette days, and but we hung out. You know, I met. You know, we I hung out with him when we played gigs and rehearsed and everything. He was also on this other group, uh, Jai Utah's Pagan Love Orchestra, which was. Uh, so how do you you're you're figuring out how to make a living? So you're playing these like wedding bands, but then you get involved in music that's more. I get. I mean, I. Well, I was doing creative music. Right. So you figured, you figured out early on how to balance those two? I mean, mm-hmm. did you? Ha- how much did you feel like you had to take gigs? I wasn't that, getting rich, but, you know. Right, but I'm getting... saying you never really had a, had a goal more than just be able to make a living and, and keep playing the music that you love to play. Mm-hmm. So, yes. and that's been just since the whole, I mean, it's been decades now. I mean, it's been amazing. Yeah, pretty much. And your career still seems to be growing. I mean, it, hope so, yeah. I mean... Yeah. I mean, did you have an idea from early on, like, this is the plan, this is how I'm going to approach um, this, you know, this equation of, like, got to make a living, want to make no, this like, music, this is how I'm going to do it. Not really. <laughs> it just kind of fell from one thing to another. Just I just knew, you know, I knew I wanted to play music and I had, you know, I had to survive. So right. you do what you can to get those things. I mean, you wrote, it seems like, you know, so again, this is something that, that I didn't realize right off the bat until I started to check out, you know, your solo albums, you know, for mm-hmm. um, going back years now, um, how much you, you've composed. That's, that's always, I feel like that's always been focus or just like to write and do you, keep do you writing. Do you compose even when you don't have like a band to compose for in the moment? Like, mm-hmm. do you have a regular schedule where you just like sit down or time of day that you sit down, and, you know? No, not just really. Just inspiration strikes. But I try to do it every day. Yeah. So but it's not like it's hard to have a regular schedule but because there's like a lot of distractions these days what is your like composition how do you approach it like do you do, you do early morning do you like sit with your guitar do you sit with a piano like what, how do you like think I, about it how do you i feel like i kind of have to trick myself into coming in, you know it's always a matter of like tricking myself into somehow getting the stuff to come out you know uh-huh. it's not always just coming out i have a few different ways i i I like to just come up with a lot of ideas um, and, you know, and not um, not edit them or get too uh, 
hung up about details at first, you know. Mm -hmm. You record everything you... So one way to do it is to just turn on a mic and record improvisations. Mm -hmm. And I'll, like, I'll say, okay, I'm going to come up with, like, nine different things, and they're all going to be different, you know. Mm -hmm. like, I'm going to pretend I'm going to write a record right now. Right. I don't, I don't always come up with great stuff, but, I mean, it's... Usually come up with something. Yeah. Or, or I'll get a some music paper and I'll be writing on the music paper. You know, I'll just come up with an idea and write it down, and mm -hmm. then I'll write another idea or figure out how to develop it. And so you're usually thinking guitar wise or band wise or just melody, rhythm well, chords. Well, either uh, write at guitar or piano. I used to write mostly at piano, and then. Uh, and I started writing with guitar more, but now I'm going back to piano, too. And also, uh, you know, the whole, uh, these logic, usually for more um, beat-oriented kind of stuff. You yeah. Know? You produce some, like, uh, computer music? Like, yeah, electronic like, music? Yeah, just As like demos a, or? Mostly demos. Mm -hmm. huh. So, between, like, being motivated to just be able, be able to make a living and be able to, and creating the music you want to create, so... You say you have to trick yourself. I mean, you have to, like, dig deep for the motivation. I mean, I know for myself, it's like there's a lot of different distractions that come up, and sometimes they're, they're, they're like, more inner, inner things that are going on that it's like I have to remind myself, oh, this is what I love to do. You know, this is what makes me happy. I don't have to get caught up in some kind of drama. I don't, you know, and then make myself a regular... Um, I mean, the more I do it, the more I'm reminded. You, you know, mean like a regular um, time regular, to do it every day? Yeah, right. I mean, I, I don't have a schedule myself. I mean, I, whenever I can get it done, you know, whenever right. I do it. But because it's so inspiration-oriented, you know, it's like, I mean, a lot of writers, I think, have this thing where they, like, you know, you know that getting good ideas isn't, you can't just do it on command. Right. But they'll, they'll yeah, establish... Yeah, it's 90% work. Right. Yeah, they'll, uh, <laughs> my teacher always would say that, you know. I do enjoy doing, but some, you know, sometimes it's really frustrating and hard. And um, but there's something that, like, you know, if you're onto something good, you know, you want to yeah. finish it, and so I make, you know, I make myself do it. And so, you know, sometimes I'll just be writing something, and it's like, oh, it's kind of good. I don't know. And then sometimes I'll think, oh, I have to finish this. This mm -hmm. is great, you know. Like the thing itself or, compels you to, to finish it. Like the, like the idea itself keeps mm -hmm. you going until it's completion. In that case, yeah, yeah, maybe the thing itself. But the thing itself is expressing something in me, right? So right. I'm asking this question because I'm I'm consistently trying to fig figure out these things for myself. Yeah. I think about how music has a function. Mm. I think that's important. Well, music historically. There's a function for different. There's different functions for it. Mm -hmm. There's, uh, you know, there's uh, music that's for dancing and music that's for listening. Musical devotional music. There's, uh, you know, there's like a whole list of different ways music, background music. You know, right. So I think I kind of think about the function of it a little bit, especially because I'm like, if I'm playing like Stanton Moore or John Medeski or doing a funk thing, you know, there's a certain thing that people kind of want to hear mm -hmm. in that world, you know. Um, and it's a, a sort of party music a little bit, you know. You know, I've, the last couple of records I did were more, I would think, more kind of jazz records, mm -hmm. right? which I think are more listening records. Listen, More listening than dancing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um. And right now I'm working on two records, and one's more of a listening record, one's more of a funk record. So I think at one point I thought you could mix it up more, but I think now it's like I'm trying to separate these things huh. a little more. Cause I mean, when I was growing up, like there was a lot of uh, experimentation, I think, in the records that were... I don't know if for some reason Jethro Tull came to mind just now, but mm -hmm. I mean, you listen to Jethro Tull, you know, it's like, yeah. what is this? You yeah. Know? Or, uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, people were just, I mean, I guess there was a certain framework like rock was a big 
you know, could go a lot of ways. I, I think you can do both of those things, but yeah, I think there's like all kinds of different uh, gradations of, you know, going this way or that way and a mix mixtures, you know. I, well, my first record was called Medicine Hat and on Verve and uh, yeah, I, I checked that one out. It's incredible. <laughs> it's funny because I, I was sort of thinking that way back then i had another group called pothole which was uh, more of the dance band yeah and this and so this but i think verve wanted me to do the dance you know they secretly oh, yeah. wanted me to do like a because that was in the 90s and the you know the whole acid jazz thing right schofield's record came out sa exact same time as mine more or less uh -huh. the, a go-go and with masking Bart wood right and there was like uh cassettes of a couple of my tracks on one side a couple of theirs on the other side you know? uh -huh. but they didn't know how to market mine mine was too you know going all over the place they were like <laughs> we don't know how to market this that you know it was kind of what i wanted to do yeah we were and we had done two records with tj kirk um before that that's kind of how i got that deal and mm -hmm. tj kirk was a we would just do whatever we wanted you know yeah like a kitchen sink kind of and people liked it you know uh -huh. um so i was sort of thinking well if we get that audience with what i was doing it would uh it could continue in that vein you know mm -hmm. but um you know if i compare my music to like what what Eskimo martin wood was doing there they would be pretty out there but they would usually keep a pretty steady yeah. come back to a steady sort of mid-tempo groove you know yeah. <laughs> that the hippies would like you know <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because i because i put out eight records now and it's cool to find people that really like or were influenced by one of them you know like yeah. uh, like i've been playing did you meet eric finland do you know eric i don't know him personally organ yeah. player yeah I don't know. He, he was here wasn't he playing when was he playing when you came to see was that that was the organ player playing with you and jason he might have been yeah okay yeah he was we did a rehearsal here once yeah um but he he's pretty young i'm not even sure how young but 30s probably and he was really influenced by my record uh blue plate special it was uh -huh. like big influence on him you know yeah. <laughs> it was like wow he's like excited to play with me because yeah. of this <laughs> record he listened to in college you know yeah 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 it's it's fun man. i like that yeah i mean i i feel like kind of still pretty i'm pretty under the radar and in, in the whole music business world you know so it's still kind of a novelty when right. my last record i did i think was what was it 2016. so i'm thinking about finishing these records and what i'm going to be doing with in the next year there's the other one there's one funk record and there's one kind of pretty out there record with chess smith and chris lightcap and Tim Burns going to be on it, and uh, Medeski's on some of it. And that's, there's a record I did called Directions to My House in uh, 2004. It's uh, with Chris, of the Chess Smith. And so I always wanted to do another record with him. And, yeah. Um, so I'm gonna, somehow I'm going to be trying to promote both of these records and see where I can go with them. Do you get your hands in promotion? I mean, do, that, do you spend time thinking about that kind of stuff, about marketing and promotion? Yeah, I do, yeah. Um, and I, it's been a while since I've actually had a regular band because it's hard to keep a band. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I had a, tr the last one was the record I gave you, Outdoor Living. Um, that was kind of my last real regular touring band mm -hmm. with a trio with Simon Lott on drums and Will Blades on organ. Um, and um, so I'm going to try to figure out. Now I have like a band, you know, I have a New York band, but I have like five guys for each spot, you know, right. <laughs> depending on who's around. Yeah. And that's kind of, and New York is anywhere really, but New York, that seems to be really the case that everybody's touring and it's hard to, keep a regular group unless you unless you're touring and have dates to offer and, yeah um do you, do you have people so, book for you or do you, you do your own booking the most at part? the moment i don't have a booking agents or management you know mm. i used to have management and booking agent yeah i don't right now and i've been a lot of times i'll do uh you know what i'm doing is like 
sideman like like John Medeski's um, Mad Skillet has been we put out a record last year and that was a band we put the me and John put together actually kind of schemed and put it together and mm -hmm. then he kind of just said well I can do this as my next project and I said yeah, do it you know even though it's more a collaborative band but, mm -hmm. but the business wise it's kind of revolves around what he and his his management want to do so right. Uh, we're not always working all the time, but we're about to do a tour this, this fall. And that's with John Medeski on keyboards and uh, Kurt Joseph on sousaphone. Oh, from yeah, the, from New Orleans. From, from the Dirty Dozen Dirty Brass Dozen. Band. Oh, awesome. And uh, Terrence Higgins is the main drummer when we can get him. But I guess we're using um, Joe Dyson on this next tour. I don't know if you heard him. Uh, young New is Orleans he also drummer. from New Orleans? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's a real New Orleans. I mean, rhythm section right there. Yeah, I mean, that's part of our. The plan is like for me and John, and then two New Orleans guys. Yeah. Well, Kirk has to be in it because there's no replacement for him. You're kind of a New Orleans guy. I think of you as an. Orleans <laughs> I'm a New guy. I'm honorary New Orleans. Yeah, New Orleans. I, I aspire for that. And I got Brian Stoltz came to to play with us oh, with cool. the Brooklyn Jazz Warriors, and I, that was like a big. Uh, you know, uh, boost for, for my, you know, my yeah, yeah. sense. Cool you know, he, um, you know, he, you know, you've all seen me play with Dr. John. I mean, um, you know, that's that just to, to accept my piano playing as like passable was a big, you know. Oh, cool, yeah. Um, but what, what did, when did you, I know I saw in, on your bio that you played with Dr. John, but was that? Well, um, how did that go down? We, there was a guy from San Francisco who first got me down to, New Orleans in about 2002, I think it was. That changed my life going down there. Alex Andreas from the Boom Boom Room. This mm -hmm. is a club in San Francisco. We played at a lot. So I brought my band down there. And then that same year, I started playing with Robert Walter and mm -hmm. Matt Stanton and all these other guys. And we uh, started playing with Idris Muhammad, um, mm -hmm. with Will Blades. Will, Will was great at like meeting these guys and getting them to... I think somehow he had influence on getting them to play at the Boom Boom Room, and we, you know we met Lonnie Smith and Idris and yeah. all these guys, you know. Uh, so we met, we started playing with Idris maybe a little bit after that, and we would play. We actually played some in the Bay Area and in New Orleans and even in New York. I think we did maybe one gig with them, one or two. And Will did a rec we did a record, Will's record, uh, sketchy. With, with, with Idris. So Idris did a show in New Orleans. Now I can't remember what year. He, Alex put it together and he got Idris' new, uh, you know, Mac Rebinac from back in the day. So he got him on it. He requested that Dr. John hmm. was on the gig. The site, because, you know, huge fan. And yeah. The, <laughs> well, did you get and, to hang with him at all? And yeah, and then like the first, they, they go, well, Mac wants to call you and talk to you about like the songs. Hmm. So like, here's his number, and I I call him, and he's like, <laughs> like "This is a bad time." <laughs> so like, I guess I better call back. You know? <laughs> so I call him the next day, I guess, or later that day, and we had like a half an hour conversation. It was incredible, you know. And he's like singing to me on the phone, and I was like, I "Can't believe this is happening." That's amazing. So yeah, we had a rehearsal for that gig. You know, I went out over to his house, and we just. This, his bass player picked me up and took me over, and he had just moved back to New Orleans at that point. They were cooking alligator out in the backyard. And <laughs> so I got to know him fairly, you know, I probably hung out with him like 15 times or something. I did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I count the rehearsals as like, there's two. You know, I did the other big, I only played really two regular gigs with him. One, the other one was a, uh, it was a benefit for Katrina and it was in Biloxi, Mississippi, hmm. 10 years after the Katrina. So it was cra like crazy, like coincident, you know, I got to play this, we played this minor league ballpark in Biloxi, Mississippi with uh, Nicholas Payton and hmm. Herlin Riley and um, Roland Garin on bass and so we had this great rehearsal, you know, the day before, and then I rode down in the car with with Mac, and then rode back, you know, the next day. Hmm. Heard all the stories, and, but he was always great to just hang out with, and he loved telling stories. And, yeah, was so what there must have been a quality about when you were went down there, because obviously you became in demand for you know New Orleans sessions. 
Um, do you feel like you were kind of ready for that? Did, was it the music you'd, your own music you'd made or what, what kind of helped you make a name, your attitude? Like, obviously you were in the right place at the right time yeah. with the right skills, you know? Well, it was kind of like, damn, I should have been coming down here a long time ago. <laughs> um, I mean, the guys like, uh, you know, like people like Medeski Martin Stanton Moore, Charlie Hunter, all those guys sort of paved a way for this mixture this, that became more like a jam band, what they call jam band, I guess, later. But mm -hmm. so it was already kind of a little spot for me to go inhabit, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And it was very, everybody down there was so, uh, and is still so welcoming to people who I think are you know, good musicians and who appreciate the New Orleans culture and tradition, you know? Yeah. Did you spend so, a lot of time, I mean, time del delving deep into that music and to... Yeah. Yeah. But, I, you know, I, I feel like I'd always sort of had a penchant for it. Yeah. Like I love Louis Armstrong. Like when I f discovered Louis Armstrong's recordings with Earl Hines, yeah, that was like a big record for me, you know. Uh -huh. And it might have been, you know, because uh, you know, I sort of attribute it to Stephen Bernstein because he was really into that music and mm -hmm. played kind of like that way, you know. Yeah. In high school, you know, was, even though they were playing like free jazz and stuff like this, he had a real Louis sort of <laughs> New Orleans style with uh, plungers, making interesting sounds on the trumpet and you know partially from lester bowie i think too was a, yeah chicago you know, we, we all love yeah. chicago I, I you know probably saw him more than any band i've ever seen in my life you know <laughs> except for well now there's a few more but yeah you know for me it's a fascinating study and i just uh constantly delve into you know read lots of books and it's a real american like a story i think you know yeah i used to live down there you know i went down there to oh. soak up the music yeah that's i mean to me that's still like there's a pinnacle of musical culture <laughs> to me it's like what i see coming out of there it's great to be connected to it and especially such a deep way as you are you know but the the i feel like there's music having certain there's a certain you know the, the function of music as like pure joy you know, whether it's connected to dancing or just listening or just quality of life, they kind of get it the best. That's true. And any genre, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter the genre, you know, certain genres. When you leave New Orleans, there's like, there's definitely much more genre distinctions and like certain music is for button down, tie for certain crowds and certain dress, certain races. You know, down there, it's just like everybody's access to everything. The guy who's playing like a classical concert. In a tuxedo one day is like out in the bayou. I, I think about like Torkinowski, David Torkinowski. I remember having this experience, like seeing him in like, uh, I think was, his father was a classical guy, but I think he did some classical thing. Or was, there's some kind of like button down. His thing. father was a conductor, I think. Right. But, but there was like just seeing the connection of those worlds. And I saw him um, out in uh, Lafayette playing with some Cajun band with like a Hawaiian shirt. And it was just like the same guy, but you know. Yeah, he's incredible. <laughs> Yeah, I was starting to play with him. He's uh, he's one of a kind for sure. So go back Tor to my fir my first question. So then, what what keeps you in Brooklyn? Oh, <laughs> <Why are> you? <laughs> not that, no, you're not welcome here. You're more than welcome here. It's great <laughs> you were able to come today. I mean, because you're because what's do you have a family? Keep I mean, do you have um, you know a steady relationship? I have a you? significant other. Yeah, yeah. We moved out here together in 2007. We she had gone to school here. We went to uh, Juilliard in Manhattan School. Um, same time as she was in school with Ben Porowski. She's a violin, oh, oh. violinist, classical violinist. And we met in one of my wedding bands. Like after mm. the Klezmer band, I was in a French musette style band with accordion and violin and bass. Mm. And I did that, I think, seven years. She was a sub. And we met there. We were both talking about how we want to move back to New York. You know. So she's a working musician as well. Mm -hmm. So you're, I guess, touring. I mean, you figure out your your schedules. She actually teaches a lot and performs with teaches a lot more than I do. The violin students, you know. So is there ever any strain, you know, in terms of or, or logistical complications in terms of touring and keeping the relationship fresh and. Um, even when I'm on the road, you know, we'll talk every day. Mm -hmm. 
it's it's not you know it's kind of maybe good for a relationship i'm not on the road as much as some people you know right you know, it gives each other some we give each other some space and yeah it's not necessarily a bad thing well, you get booked you know very heavily i mean you have to make a decision between gigs that you're taking in terms of what brings an in income versus i guess certain gigs might, might bring less i mean how do you balance it all how do you, do you figure it out i try to have like something that gonna pay my rent you know like every month you know uh -huh. Uh -huh. um and then kind of figure out the other stuff with littler gigs maybe that's sort of my doesn't always work that way but that's the, yeah. sort of my goal so like i was teaching these camps in the summer I, I didn't really perform a lot this summer so those were kind of my things i did and i i also still am involved a lot in the bay area and mm. Your family there still? My dad lives there, and I have a lot of cousins and things there. I'm still involved there and on the West Coast a lot, and I've been playing with a lot of Seattle musicians and touring around Northwest. So if I have, like, a lull here, I'll, like, hey, you know, what's going on up in Seattle? And I go, I can always get work in the Bay Area. If you were booking, let's say, a tour for your own band, because you're, how well, how would you go about doing it or making your uh, contacts if you're reaching out? I wish I knew. Yeah, <laughs> I'm pretty bad at it right now. I'm trying to. I'm gonna make another push at it. I have. I've been slacking. You know, I'm doing my own <laughs> my own band. Been doing more collaborations. But there's like a kind of uh, for a certain music like uh, funk and jam band. There's like a little trail, you know, mm -hmm. of clubs that were you can in different levels like. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a well-worn trail at this point. Uh -huh. Lately, I've been uh, like I've been doing some stuff with uh, this drummer Bill Carbone, who uh, plays. Who's had a lot of connections up in Connecticut and that area, and you know he can he knows all the clubs up there, so mm -hmm. he can book some stuff for us. You know, I'm sort of taking the easy route, more easy yeah. routes these days. Well, good. You um, seem you seem pretty relaxed. But seem... like in. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a while back, I was really concentrating on Europe, and I would spend hours every day, book, you know, trying to oh. get connections and yeah. emailing, like, oh, what's, you know, trying to uh, book a festival. That would be, I always try to book a festival and then book around that, you know. Yeah. So I'd say, hey, you know, I'd write people and say, do you know, I'm, I'm looking for something around this area, and, you know, do you know anybody or clubs or... Mm -hmm. Or just send out mass yeah. emails, like hundreds of emails to everybody, and, and then pick yeah. through all the rejections and the. <laughs> it takes a lot uh, of. Uh, <laughs> but that's exhausting. the thing. I guess there's a balance between, I mean, being extremely proactive, and then also just being relaxed about everything. You know, letting things flow, finding that right. balance. Well, you can get hung up in it, and there's a lot of rejection, and uh, that goes along with your successes. Yeah. You know, so. If you have to be in the right frame of mind to deal with that. <laughs> well, do you, you know? cultivate a certain frame of mind? Do you have a certain like philosophy or outlook of, of things that keeps you calm about everything and not getting freaked out? Because that wouldn't be good for the music. One, I think one of the trademarks of your music is it's coming from a very uh, soulful, but you know, kind of uh, a grounded and, and relaxed place. That's kind of how I hear it. Especially like certain fusion. I think one of the hallmarks of of funkier music earthy music new orleans music in particular is it's like you can kind of breathe, like take a deep breath kind of music as opposed to like a certain fusion music that can be very frenetic and it like <laughs> makes you breathe faster you know it uh, feels like you're on that more southern end on that yeah know. like why why do people want to hear this frenetic and it, you know it's kind of like gives you energy right that's why yeah right? and i like that too sometimes you know but i i guess i like a broad spectrum of music and yeah, and it just depends on my mood. But you know, if I want to feel grounded and more like that feeling of hap of happiness and centeredness, then sometimes I'll I'll put on that you know something more funky. Or that's I think that's what I I'm gonna I turn that I think that's one of the things that like you're saying that draws me to that music is because it makes you feel hap happy. Yeah. You know, it's like a, that's its purpose, is to lift you up. And yeah. Do you, do you self-medicate with, with music? <laughs> like I do? <laughs> yeah. So I think I got into it. But what's interesting is, like, I, when I was in music school, I would listen. I was, I was into Prince pretty heavily. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I was, like, 
put it on the relax, you know, just mm. to, ah, you know, feel relaxed and happy, you know, and so it's kind of like, yeah, I, want, I need more of that in my life, you know. Yeah. But I know it's not all, I can't survive only on that. I'm not one of those kind of people, you know, I need, you know, I like to listen to Shostakovich and, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and, you know, I like to read books that are not necessarily, uh, you know, that are darker or whatever. Like what, what, what are you reading lately or, or something that? Actually, right now I'm reading uh, some Cornfield, Jack Cornfield mindfulness because I need to, I'm trying to mm-hmm. get in a better <laughs> place, you know. <laughs> I'm trying to, that's why I'm feeling I'm the need for more grounding right now, you know. Yeah. I hear you. Well, that's it's ironic. I'm telling you, your music makes me feel very grounded. Yeah, but I guess it's that's something that's interesting about music. The musician behind it isn't necessarily always, except maybe when they're making it, embodying that right you know, in their life. You know? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to be alive sometimes. You know, like I'm saying, this record I'm making with chess, it's definitely what may more frenetic. You know, yeah, most of it. It's pretty difficult music, actually. So, I, I wanted to make a record where I just, I just wanted to let my my mind go uh, without restrictions. For mm-hmm. like, uh, I have to go play it, uh, you know, in New Orleans at at the DBA or something, you know. Or, yeah. <laughs> did you did, have you recorded some of that already? Or? Yeah, it's all pretty much it's all, all recorded. Oh, wow. I'm going to hear that. I'm gonna next week. Tim Byrne is gonna come over and overdub on some tracks and then cool. I have to figure out how to mix it. What's come, what are you in the future? What are you looking forward to? I mean, more, either musically or, or just, you know, spiritually, whatever, like there, do you have particular goals that you're working towards? Yeah. Um, like I said, I'm just trying to, uh, give it another push to my own music again, you know? Um, and I'm, and I'm trying to get the strength to do that yeah. in this, crazy market they have and now. well things have changed i mean obviously since you first released a record i mean the whole record business was has is a completely different thing now yeah yeah it is like this john medeski's record we uh he didn't find any record company that would give him the amount of money he wanted to, so he ended up um doing a gofundme or mm-hmm. i guess it was kickstarter you know mm-hmm. to make the to pay for the record and yeah so that's the whole other like yeah how am i gonna put these records out i don't know have you done anything like that have you thought about doing anything like that i haven't i'm not sure i'm going to do it or not but yeah it it could be a stress i mean it can be a stress inducing thing yeah you gotta i mean you have to appreciate the stress for what it is but it it, you know it is is a beneficial it can be a beneficial stress i I did it for one album it's you know Mm -hmm. it's uh it's very humbling it it is it's it's really humbling i mean finding a way to fund Music when music is has been devalued financially. Yeah. I, mean, I think it's more valuable than ever, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically. But financially, it's, it's just it's been devalued. It's not worth as much more, you know, on the open market um, as it used to really, be. That's strange. I mean, the, the advantages are now you can make a record in your own studio right. and mm-hmm. put it online, and exactly. people will hear it. Yeah. Whereas when I was growing up, it was like a record. How do you? Do that. How do you make a record? You know, right. have to have a record company. You know. Yeah. How do you get a get a deal? You know, yeah. get a deal was a big, a big deal. Right. Uh, <laughs> I mean, re- I mean, really, the reason, the two reasons I'm making a record are to continue writing music and performing and doing this process that I've been doing since I was a teenager. Right. And then the second right. Reason is to get gigs and to go out and play, you know. So. Well, that's but that's the main but the main source of income is the gigs, right? Because I'm not really thinking that I'm going to make rec- money on these records. With the so. records, right? No, if you're going to think of like a create, you know, I, I'm constantly thinking about like create other creative ways to fund the music. Just trying to think, you know, think out of the box, and it's like, especially when as a rabbi, you know, I've I ran a Jewish organization called Chabad, Chabad of Woodstock. In, in Woodstock, and the role of a Chabad rabbi is to you know, provide Jewish services for people living in the area, and you know, mm-hmm. teach class. It's up to the rabbi who does it there, like the what's needed and 
might teach, make a synagogue, or make, you know, do How long did things. you live there? I was there for five years. Are you still a rabbi? Yeah, some stuff. That was never defrocked. <laughs> do you have a synagogue? So I don't know, but so I don't have a synagogue. That's, I think this is my synagogue, so to speak. So that the model of that is, you know, how do you run an organization, support a family, mm-hmm. you know, um, do events and um, have classes or whatever, it's the fundraising. And the music thing was always, like you're saying, you know, you get a deal, you get paid for gigs, you get, it's a very different income stream. But the the commonality, you know, with like Kickstarter, <laughs> that's very much more like fundraising. So for me, in terms of making the music, both in terms of making music and in terms of um, the aspect of being a rabbi, which is is uh, mentoring, teaching, you know, there's there's thousands of years of ancient wisdom that also has, besides just for well-being, I believe has a particular insight into understanding music on a deeper level and becoming a better musician. So that's something I'm working on in terms of teaching and writing. I've done for a few years. So it's all things that are not that dissimilar from what I was doing at Woodstock to fundraise for. So I've been, you know, that's been kind of my most recent creative idea, though it's I, I confront again the, the the and I talk talking to a, a rabbi friend of mine. Like, why is it so hard to fundraise? And I think it's similar to running a Kickstarter. It's mm-hmm. very hard because it's it's against it's like our human nature to protect our dignity, you know, right, to be to true. be that humbled to like ask. But there's a but there's a benefit to it. But it's you know it's uh, one needs to find the balance. I think know? of those monks with their begging bowls that right travel around, and that's just part of their. <laughs> Buddhists, you know, right, and I, and I think like of a, certain rabbis who have tons of dignity, you know, and and, and it's not and then when they ask for, you know, or when when they they're fundraising, it's not a going, you know, hat in hand. No, they're they're like um, they have a sense, of, you know, it's like the person thanks them, <laughs> the, per, the, the donor rabbi. thanks the rabbis, thank sure. you for letting me give to you, kind of, you know, I'm not on that, on that level, but. but yeah, I mean like that. The Buddhist monks there would they, I don't think they think of it as a, a indignity, you know. Right. To, to, but it's a hum, it's still humbling. Either way, it's still humbling. Yeah, it's a so you know. But obviously, to think about being as a musician as a spiritual role, you know, even in a secular yeah. environment, you know, like in people who consume music in a secular way, they're still religious. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely drawn to spirituality and music. For yeah. Sure, yeah. Well, it sounds like it. I mean, you you've had some, I guess, music connected with Eastern. <clears throat> Eastern religion, you said you were involved in early on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. I want to. I want to respect your time. I know. You know. I really appreciate you coming out here. Any. You know. Thoughts and things you. Some you want to share. Some. That's interesting. Coming. You know. Here and just thinking about Brooklyn and how much interesting cross references and different people sharing ideas and just makes me happy to be part of that. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> Well, thanks, Will. It's uh, you know, it's really a pleasure, and you know, we're neighbors, so. Where do you live? I live right around the corner, like. Oh, okay. Less That's than cool. five minute walk from here. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's been great just be able to come here, you know, every day to, even when I have a lot of other things going on, just yeah. be able to slip in and. You know, yeah. Make some music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That looks <laughs> like you're doing it.
That was Pursuit of Happiness from Will Bernard's 2000 release Motherbug, featuring Will Bernard on guitar, Michael Bluestein on Hammond B3, Keith MacArthur on bass, Jan Jackson on drums, with additional guests Michael Urbano on percussion and the Big Hut strings, adding a bit of the shimmer up top there. So I want to again thank Will Bernard for coming by the studio. Definitely go check out his music. Check out his website, willbernard.com. Also, check out some of his tour dates. He'll be touring with John Modeski in the group Mad Skillet, which he was talking about. has that great New Orleans rhythm section featuring Kirk Joseph from the Dirty Dozen Brass Band. That song we just heard, Pursuit of Happiness, I think it really fits the themes so that we were talking about that idea of different shades and functions of music. Hearing the tune, the title strikes me as a bit ironic because the, the tune is kind of bittersweet. There's something to that, those different shades of music that sometimes the happiest music can be mixed with some bittersweet music or some the darker elements of music. And we need both. We, there's In uh, Hasidic thought, it talks about the different attributes of kindness and strictness as they play out in this world, and particularly how they play out in music. And the attribute of kindness, which exists on a level, you know, like a spiritual level, comes down into this world to express itself as, like, let's say, kindness in this world. And in music, it's joyful music. And then the other side, the, the attribute of strictness, we experience in this world as bitterness or discipline, a certain kind of strength, a certain kind of hardness, some of the darker elements of music. And celebrations usually call for joyful music. And when someone is feeling down, interestingly, and you can check this with your own experience, that it's sometimes the, the darker music that help you through that. You know, the famous story of when King David was summoned to the court of King Shaul, who was feeling very down. He had, he had a, a ruh, rah, he had a bad spirit about him. And David came and played, and the tradition was that he played a darker kind of music that helped him process some of those feelings. And then there's music that kind of combines the two. And so I think this a lot of music that we hear nowadays has both those elements. So I think this song, Pursuit of Happiness, to me, kind of combines joyful elements. That's kind of you find in the title, but it's a pursuit, so there's a longing, and there's a darkness in there too. So go back and, and check that out again. You can go and pick up Will Bernard's album, Mother Bug, and check out his other music. So again, I'd like to thank our patrons for helping keep us going, bringing you these episodes for free, helping support the music. You can join their ranks at patreon.com slash soundheightsrecords and go to soundheightsrecords.com to see all the rewards in one place. You can check out the Brooklyn Jazz Warriors music, all the podcast episodes. We really pr appreciate your support and we also appreciate your feedback. So feel free to write soundheightsrecords at gmail.com I've been working with Peter Himmelman who remember was our guest a few weeks back and we've been figuring out a way to provide guidance for musicians that would be free of charge or extremely low cost supported and subsidized by donations so start that write an email let us know what you're thinking what you're going through if we can be of any assistance or encouragement, by all means, let us know. So in the meantime, remember, the abundant singing and playing of music, we bring about the true and complete redemption. See you next time. <laughs>